What's up? What's up? What's up? We are grateful to come to you again with another episode of the What's Up Cuz podcast. I'm Dr. David Brock, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to share this platform with the always incredible, amazing, always gorgeous, ever ready, and the greatest person that I know uh, to host a show with. It is the one and only Dr. Sharon McDaniel. What's up, cuz? What's up, cuz? You know, every time I, you know, listen to you, I'm like, okay, put some more adjectives. You keep on adding them. So that is fine with me. How are you doing today? I'm wonderfully well. How about you? Oh, just been busy. You know, I've been traveling for the last month, so I'm so glad to be on the ground. What about you? I know I've been happening and been jumping around myself. I've had an incredible summer, spent some time in, in Europe and then came back and went on a cruise with my wife and then came back and was traveling for work. So it's been a busy season for me as well. And I tell you, <laughs> I know you've been jumping all over the world as well. Yes, I have. But, you know, it's been it's been pretty remarkable. I'm I'm so blessed and fortunate um, to have had an opportunity to hang out with you and Melissa and um, just great work going on in the nation. And so um, obviously um, a second chance is centered in a lot of that work. So grateful to be working and grateful to have some relevancy in this space of child welfare and child well-being. So, so good things are going on. So, but it's good to see you. It's good to be seen. As they say, I tell you all the time, it's better to be seen and not viewed. And it's good to see you too. And I'm grateful. <laughs> you always crack me up when you say that. Absolutely. I don't want to be viewed. I know that's right. And I went, and I, I, unfortunately, somebody that we both knew passed away recently. And I went to look and view and went to her funeral and she looked amazing, but you know what? I'd rather be here than to be there. And look amazing. Listen, <laughs> listen, my mom said one time about my aunt, my aunt passed away and, and I'm telling you, the funeral home made her look so good. My aunt said, if she would have knew, my mom said, if she would have knew she was going to look like that, she would have died a long time ago. I was like, mom, <laughs> but you know, but it's always great to be here. And I always have the opportunity to share this platform with you, bringing relevant information to the nation uh, around the plight of our black and brown people. We're unapologetic about trying to educate our people and share resources and tools that they can take uh, from these moments and apply to their lives, trying to make things better uh, for those that listen in. So with that, you know, I know it is kinship month uh, it is, and, and it's a great thing because we're going to be talking about uh families and foster care and kinship today in our episode. And I just, before we even get started, want to celebrate you. I thought about this and as this topic was, you know, thing I had to say it and I would be remiss if I did not. I want to celebrate you because I thought about the fact that you have spent many, many years. I won't say it because people will be trying to figure out how old you are, but you've That's spent That's all right. Many, you can many, say many, it. 30 many years. years. Okay. You know, <laughs> the organization has been around over 30 years, almost 30 years, and you've been doing it even longer than that. But you have been pouring yourself uh, into this nation and into our city and around the country uh, as a ambassador for change. And you have been instrumental through the vision that God put in you. 
and the purpose God put upon your life. I'm grateful that you answered that purpose. And because you answered that purpose, countless lives have been changed and saved as a result of the vision and the work that you have done. Individuals have been employed and and people have been able to make a livelihood from the seed of God that was planted in you. So before we say anything about kinship, we applaud you and we give you thanks for who you are and what you've done. So we celebrate you in this moment. Oh, well, I'm just grateful. You know, it's pretty heavy. Um, I just remain humbled, um, humbled about what um, God has done and um, continues to do. But I always tell people that this is not about me. God just chose to use me as a vessel to be a messenger for this work. And so I'm really grateful and honored um, because I've been able to meet great people and families have been able to be transformed. Um, families were always at the center of change, but unfortunately, the child welfare system did not necessarily embrace family the way they are attempting to do it in this moment. And so I'm just really honored for all the number of people who have stopped by a second chance just to lend their talents, skills, and abilities and all the families and children's lives we've been able to change um, and, and, and support, quite frankly, because this is really about um, creating um, a movement for support. Uh, so I really do appreciate the the honor, but the honor is mine to serve in the way that I've been commissioned by God to serve. So thank you so much, Dr. Brown. You're welcome. You know what I, I, I love, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, God allows you to serve is because you always point it back to where it came from. And so many people don't do that, but I'm grateful to be connected to you and I'm grateful to watch you uh, continue to serve and to continue to give honor where it belongs. And that is all the glory belongs to God. So we thank you again for what you are doing and what you have done. And and we know with that, that um, recently the White House announced some uh, changes that they would like to see to help uh, support children and families in foster care. Uh, more than 391,000 children live in foster care. And one of the things that we say at A Second Chance is every child touched by a second chance has a right to be safe and thrive. But mm -hmm. the, the White House is, you know, saying that they realize that children have a right to be in safe, loving homes uh, where their health and happiness and success is. And about 27 percent of those children are placed in kinship homes. And, and as we go around the country, a second chance trying to help people understand the challenges that kin families face that are different than regular foster care. Uh, it was good to see this um, announcement made and good to see that the White House is trying to put, as they always say, put your money where your mouth is and really support these families. And so we know that uh, ASCI, Second Chances, we know it, we call it ASCI, but ASCI was founded and has served over 40,000 children. Um, uh, that's amazing to me. Over 40,000 mm -hmm. children, closer to 70% of the children in uh, our founding county, Allegheny County, have been placed with kin. And this is a powerful statement, one that I, I, I when I travel on behalf of the organization that I really uh, put out there and applaud the efforts of making a difference for kin families. And so before we start 
We have some incredible guests I know that are going to be introduced. But as we set this up, Doc, just just share with us real quick. And and, and once you share, uh, will you please introduce our guests for today's podcast? But why is Ken so important and why is this necessary? And then we're going to bring our guest on who will also help build this uh, moment for our listeners. So, Doc, why is kinship so important? Yeah, and I and I guess I would say, why is it not? Um, I think that when we um, when we think about family, um, we are connected to um, a lineage, if you will. We are connected to elders, and those elders pass down information to us and teach us who, um, where we get this particular behavior from, where we get our eye, you know color eyes from. So when we think about kinship and family. We're thinking about belonging. We don't have to worry about, because you know, Pookie going to be loved by grandma. You know, it don't matter what Pookie done did. You know, grandma going to love her some Pookie, okay? And so we think about the whole idea that um, family is going to be there no matter what. And then in the context of child welfare, um, we need to start with family. Too often we think family cannot show up and, and, and be counted. But in fact, what we know now through this announcement with the um, Biden-Harris administration, and I would suggest to you many administrations, um, because one of the things, children are bipartisan. So when we have um, red, blue states and in, 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 in those um, politicians voting on this, but issues around children, it's a bipartisan issue, and people want children to thrive and do well in this country. And so we're really grateful um, for this um, new um, announcement that came out just on this Wednesday. Um, but what we wanted to do in having this conversation is really invite some folks to um, doctors just really celebrate with us, but also from their own uh, respective lens to be able to talk about what this um, new initiative around kinship care in the nation, and we'll talk more about it, go a little bit more deeper about it, but what does that mean from their vantage point? And so we have joining us today, Dr. Sherry Horton. She is um, a guest that we've had in the past, just a brilliant scholar from the University of New Hampshire, and she is the second vice president of the Black Administrators and Child Welfare, but I certainly firmly call her my sister friend. And then we have Dr. James Freeman. He's a professor of Johnson C. Smith University, um, holler at the HBCU, and he is also the chief program officer at um, A Second Chance Incorporated. So we're happy to have Doc here. And then also my sister friend, my girl from a long time, sister from another mister, is uh, Talisa Morton, and she is a kinship caregiver. So she's one with lived experience. And so we wanted to center their voices in this conversation as we began to probe and interrogate, what does this mean for children in this nation as we begin to unveil um, not only the, the regulations, but the licensing process that will go with the regulations. So welcome, everyone. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's so good to have you all here. And so you heard Dr. Um, Brock and I just kind of really setting the context for the conversation today. And so I wanted to give you all this question, and we'll start with you, Dr. Freeman. When you hear that children have a right to grow up in safe and loving um, uh, devoted homes and that we need to think about their health, happiness, and success, We understand that, but yet only 27% of children nationally in the child welfare system are placed in kin. 
What about that statement that only 27% of the children in care, out of home care, in the child welfare system are placed with Ken? What about that statement touches you and fuels your work today, that, that, that you do today, um, and that you will do in the future? I'm so glad um, to be here to offer another perspective and point of view to this work and to this conversation. You started off today in your retorting, you said children are bipartisan. And I was like, you know what? Children are bipartisan. And it's so easy to hear the word right for them to have a home. But then we have to think about who provides a home because children are individual units. They come in systems. To get here, they have to have a mother and a father. And I'm like, yes. so why do we not support mom and dad and demonize them such as it should be a privilege for them to have a safe home, but we want to make it a right for the children. And then that creates the, the, the challenge in child welfare. It's like we would prefer to place people outside of family than within family and, then to, and to ensure that the family has the right supports to protect the rights of the children. So that's what that's what fuels me. You know, what I'm mm -hmm. saying whether we're trying to get the birth parents the supports that they need, whether we're trying to fight to ensure that children can get to relatives. You know, that's that's the work that fuels me in this work. Excellent. And so you're, the whole idea is that, you know, we need to center family, but also support them. And too mm -hmm. often, and I want to make sure that we set this context, because all of us agree that kinship should only be used when uh, children need out-of-home care. But we'll talk a little bit later, but we know that there is uh, money moving into the prevention space, and we'll talk more about that. But I want to make sure that we're really clear that children should only come into care when absolutely necessary but we should, the child welfare system and other serving systems should make sure that we're, we're creating a robust community, a community of care so that we can, in fact, um, support these young uh, children and their families before they would ever have to touch the child welfare system. I'm reminded of a statement from the Associate Commissioner, Aisha Schomburg, who I have to give a shout out to her because she came to the Biden administration wanting to make sure that she would center not only kinship, but race equity. And so I just give a shout out to her. But one of the things that she said in a recent um, editorial, she talked about this whole idea of a family support society. So not, not, not child welfare, not child well-being, but a family support society where every child and every family is understood to be a value in this society. And we wrap the necessary supports uh, to all families, um, no matter where their standpoint. And so just wanted to, to, to give her a shout out for that. But I wanted to circle back to Lisa. When you hear the statement about um, that the children deserve a loving and devoted home and that they should have health, happiness and success, but only 27% of the children um, nationally and out of home care and kinship. What? How does that statement touch you and fuel the work that you do day in and day out and in the future? Thank you, Doc. And <clears throat> good morning, Game Changers. And thank you for this time period for us to have this conversation because everyone here, this is our life and this is the work. And I think what motivates me is no one, no one, not ourselves, wants to be hooked up with a stranger. Um, mm -hmm. Even when we're moving through our space through life, you don't want to take a long ride trip 
with a complete stranger. When we've dropped our children off at daycare as they were growing up, that was traumatic for them, just even for us to drop them off at a space where they didn't know the people there. And they were only there for uh, part of the day, but it was traumatic for them. And so for me, I want to reduce the trauma for anybody, and especially the children we're supposed to keep safe. Um, and you want them to be around people that look like them. We've talked about that, passing down traditions and cultures, um, skill sets, things that you normally, if you disconnected from who you are and the people who you've come through, your bloodline, you could be a seamstress or a doctor or a builder. But if that information is not passed down, then you're resetting every time. So I think that is what motivates um, me to continue to do this work. And I love what Aisha was talking about uh, with Family Support Society. And I do believe what I love about what A Second Chance has done is to create that triad where there is a complete circle with the child, the birth parent, and the kin caregiver. So I think that is definitely a start. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for that. I really, I really love, um, you know, that that analogy you gave about about childcare because we drop our children out off every day, but we pick them up, you know. So that's the difference, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, and and they're with strangers, but that but that whole bonding period takes some time. And so, so thank you for centering that. And what about you, Doctor Sherry? What would what would you add to this? So yeah, good morning, and thank you both for having me as well. Um, you know, when you asked about this um, 27 nationally percent are, um, there's only 27%. What, you know, I, I tend in my work to try to look at how to dismantle barriers and systems for Black families. And um, what this tells me is that, you know, with the, with the broader federal um, well-intentioned policies to, you know, push more kinship families to be able to get the resources that they need to um, have have children in their families either permanently or until uh, biological parents can resume care. Um, when it gets, what, what the 27% tells me is that there's something that is getting di- interpreted differently as it goes into the states. It's mm-hmm. not a common thing, obviously. So, you know, the support is needed, but the support without barriers, the support without all of the extra surveillance, the support without penalty for um, families to stay connected to biological families. We say that kinship is allows for our kids to be able to, you know, remain connected to their to their roots and their family. But yet when family members actually do that in this very normalized way, if it wasn't a formal um, process for them, they're penalized for it. So I think that those things are still happening. And it, and it just would make sense to me without, you know, knowing the full scope of the research on, on that particular number, um, that if we're talking about 27%, that there may be still some barriers that are trickling down from what the federal policy is intended to do. So I think that, you know, while we're making a lot of progress, and I certainly, as, you know, Dr. Brock mentioned, appreciate, you know, your model, um, having, you know, having a Black-owned, Black female-owned business that is really providing a framework that should be used across the country to be able to ensure that, you know, kids are being able, Black kids are being able to be connected to 
to family members. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think that, that that as it gets interpreted by the states and there's still some work that needs to be done and we need to be leaning into how to disrupt those barriers. Thank you, Doctor. I'm sharing. I really like what you said. You said support without dot, 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 right? And so it's the the whole idea. We know that there are so many more millions, um, over 4 million um, children who are being supported by grandparents and other relatives outside of the child welfare system. So those that are inside the child welfare system are very small. But of that group, if we know you have this big sea of families outside of the system, we know many more children can be placed with their relatives with inside the system. And it and it's our hope um, and certainly our aim um, to ensure that this um these new sets of regulations that then will also have the licensing um uh, standards will ensure that more families who come to the attention of the child welfare system that they have the right to have their children placed with the, with those that they have identified that love their children while they are working on those um, situations to um you know get their children back because i believe all of us from time to time we need we need assistance it may not need it should not necessarily be from the child welfare system but we need somebody to you know reach out and touch us sometimes and say listen i'm having a moment you know, can you just babysit Johnny for a few seconds till I get myself together? So to be able to have this system that is really centered in the whole wellness of families would be really, really important. So moving from that, like you said, that surveillance model to that family society model, that support um, society model that Asia is talking about, or that well-being system that others have talked about. So Dr. Brock, you're going to take us into further um, conversations because Dr. Sherry hit on something in terms of what jurisdictions may see as a result of this. You know, we know many jurisdictions across the, um, the, the the nation are still looking at the apple doesn't fall too far away from the tree. And I know you have an adage for that and you do values training. So why don't you uh, move us forward um, in this discussion? Right, thanks, Doc. I appreciate all of you all and everything that you've added to the conversation so far. I, I loved how Talisa came on and said, hey, good morning, game changers, because I believe that's what you all are. And one of the things, as Doc said, we, we go around the country and we do a training on values to try to teach jurisdictions to really uh, emphasize and to see that without families, if you don't value families, then you just definitely will never value kin. And and we, we like to say the second chance, even if the apple does fall from the tree, it still belongs in the orchard. So we we know that to be a fact. And so, <laughs> you know, I tell people all, that, all the time and I tell them, if you look, if you look close enough, there's a golden branch on that tree. You just didn't yes. look for it. But there is a golden branch on that tree. I just said that to a group of people in Michigan, you know, hey, the apple still belongs in the orchard. And if you look hard enough, there's a golden branch on that tree. Not every branch on that tree is weak. So. With that, we know that the Biden administration, uh, the Biden-Harris administration uh, wanted to build on this progress, and they released three landmark reg uh, regulations to try to strengthen the services uh, and supports for children and families. And so, uh, Dr. Free, I'm going to come to you. We, we know from our work is it, with kin families that often there is a lack of financial support that is given to foster families. But in many jurisdictions around the country, that same level of support is not given to kin families. And so why do you believe that this lack of, of support or difference in supporting is a prevailing issue nationwide? And what would you say 
to those jurisdictions that still feel that they don't need to support kin families the way they support traditional foster families? You know, both you and Doc just centered the conversation and to the values. Kinship care is a value. If you don't value family and the role of family in the protection of identity, the transmission of heritage, um, you won't commit to this work. But I was loving um, the conversation because Talisa hit it on the head and Doc, I thank you for tagging into that. Um, I was like, you know what, if we by pure academic standards know that children experience stranger danger and mm-hmm. we have a whole psychological phenomena about how children, you know what I'm saying, have stranger danger and is building an attachment to their parents. And then we then we create a system that violates all of those principles that we study when we're talking about children and that that, that opportunity to have to engage with strangers. So mm. for me, it's centered around not just the less of a value for family, if you will, but it's also, um, I think, the community's challenge with the system. I remember 30 years ago in 1995, I got to stick my story in there, right? Because I've been in kinship care since I graduated high school, college. And so, but, and I remember working as a, when I, when a part of my role was to train the foster parents and the grandmothers would come in and say like, young whippersnapper, you haven't even had your first kid yet. And I was like, no, ma'am, but I'm, I've been, I've bought into this company line. And I would have to work with grandma. And she was like, you know what? I don't want to be a part of the system. So I met so many families who had a value for their family and who was going to be there. You know what I'm saying? But they was like, we're just going to stay outside of the system. Not many of us remember that this, the, the uh, uh, initial legislation was Yoakum versus, Doc, help me out. Yoakum versus Miller. Yoakum versus Miller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those families pulled together and begun to demand what they were supposed to have a right to in the system. But not every family in our community is like, you know what? We'll just continue to struggle then mess around. I was like, well, no, we're creating a kinship community and we're not going to put you in this community and not fight with you. And then Doc came through with SPLC because there's like, James, I don't want to adopt my grandbaby. I don't want to change my bloodline. I don't want to change the legal structure of who I am to this child or take away my child's legal rights. And so we fought, you know what I'm saying? So we made people feel safe, but I would dare say to jurisdictions, not only is it just a value, but also ensure that these families feel safe and that they will not experience further harm as they engage in these systems. Thank you for the opportunity. That's really great. And and so Doc, so Yoakum versus Miller was the 1979 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that said, that families, kinship families could not be discriminated against if they met the same standards Mm -hmm. as the traditional foster um, parents. And so that sort of gave the landmark ruling for the nation. And so as a result of that, then our case in Allegheny County was Rivera versus Karras, because in fact, there was discriminatory practices going on, and I would offer that there still are. Um, and so our caregivers in Allegheny County got together um, and, and, and brought a lawsuit um, and demanded that they receive the opportunity be- to become licensed providers. In fact, I was a CPS worker when um, 
this was going on and 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 indeed uh we had to start paying licensing and start paying um our caregivers so we've been doing it for a long time but they back in 1989 they were not Allegheny County was not doing it well they were doing an internal to their organization and that's when we became the um, as a result of not doing it well, became the worst system in the nation. But now we have turned that around as a result of kinship care, where we have almost 70% of kids in out-of-home care in placement with their relatives. And so thank you for um, setting the context in terms of some of the legal framing for the work that we do, because it's there. And it's been other states that have been sued. But Pennsylvania as a whole um, has entered a consent decree to ensure that children have the right to be placed with Ken. So thank you for framing that. And Doc, back to you. Well, thank you both. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation, and I'm sitting here nodding my head and just, just really, <laughs> really enjoying it. Thank you. Know. I have to remind you, oh, oh, Doc, you're, you're the co-host. You, you, so you, right. <laughs> you know, I start writing notes and little things and tidbits to add to my training. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, I you got put, to drop. You put, you put, you know, you're like, oh, I'm a guest. Oh, 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 I forgot I'm the co-host yeah, here. I'm a co-host. But y'all start spitting knowledge, and once it starts coming out, you know, I have these great scholarly minds, and I was like, okay, didn't know that. Yo, come, okay, got that. Making notes here, but... <laughs> I'm going to pay attention so I can, can pay keep attention. Well, keep that, well, that's good. And I know I have the next question. So, um, but I just wanted to make sure if you had anything else to add to Dr. Freeman before we moved on to the next question. No, you know, no, you know, but it's, it's interesting. As I, as I said, we just recently, more recently uh, left uh, some fine people in Michigan and I'm noticing uh, around the country doc and everybody, but I'm noticing that a lot of times people that actually do the work, that get it, that that see it, that are out there touching the families. The people at the top are sometimes so far removed, they don't understand the decisions that they're making and how it really affects the individuals at the bottom. And so when, when it, you know, the people there we were training were like, my manager needs this, my my director needs this, this one needs this. Are, 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 they, are you going to take this to, like, like the people that make the laws and rules, can you take this there? Because they need to get it. You know, and that's what they were saying. Like, they don't get it. And and sometimes there is such a gap that is between those that make the rules. You know, we like to say at a second chance, nothing for us without us. Well, that's not uh -huh. happen that's not happening everywhere, Dr. Sharon, as you already know. That's not uh -huh. happening everywhere. There's a lot being made for people and then just given to them saying, here, eat this. And people don't want to eat what they have not participating in preparing. So Dr. Freeman, thank you for that point. We know that there still is change. And as we go, we definitely have to push a value for family and a value for Ken because Ken makes a difference. So doc, back to you and you can move us on to the next question. Cause with us, you know, we'll be here for till tomorrow. We will be here till tomorrow, but it'll be all, all very good. However, absolutely. <laughs> So, um, but you know, so Talisa, Dr. Freeman just kind of um, really talked about when grandma was coming sort of resistant in terms of going to, we don't even call it training, you know, we call ours enrichment workshops because, you know, the, grandma wants to be enriched. She does not want to be trained. And so we learned that early on. And that's why she's saying, whippersnapper, what you going to tell me? But I can, he could say, I can enrich you, give you some um, new tools or whatever. So, you know, many caregivers talk about the the nature and the extensiveness of the training, um, if you will, or, or the enrichment, as we call it. And so from your lived experience as a kinship caregiver, in what ways do you believe 
states should simplify the process of um, kin, kin caregivers becoming um, licensed? And do you think that these spe- kin specific standards would harm kin in any way? Because this is the this is the thing that's being bandied about. Well, are these standards going to be less than or whatever? And so, why don't you help the nation understand they're not less than? But from your vantage point, what are your thoughts? Great. And this is all like uh, Dr. Brock has said, some wonderful conversation. And I've gotten so caught up. I was going to pop some popcorn and just <laughs> sit back and just let's keep going. Um, but this is good, especially as far as kin, kip, kinship caregivers in this licensing process, because I've been through it. Um, <clears throat> and it's cumbersome. It's it's worse than a job, worse than a second job with bad money. Um because what what you're getting in the end in this space is um, a lot of work and then you have a displaced child or a displaced family member. So you're, you're yourself, whether it is whatever your fam- family dynamic is, you're struggling to probably get ends met yourself as you work your job. And as you take care of your family, then you have to stop that. Um, figure out what to do in the meantime with your family while you go through this training that is extensive. And then if you um, are struggling anywhere with literacy or any of that level, then that becomes another barrier for you to even pass the class. Mm -hmm. And at this whole time, you're being judged. um, You're being scrutinized. It's very intrusive. Um, You're saying to an outside agency that we've talked about um, the difference of the trauma with having saying to like Dr. Free said, there's a stranger danger situation here, but even as a culture in some communities, you have a trepidation about engaging certain systems. Mm, mm. And so that also is a setup in that space. Um, So yes, this is, lovely for them to create adjustments for kinship because this is why we won't seek resources or additional help. We try to manage these things our own in our community, which is still damaging when you don't have all of the resources. Um, But we were raised with cousins in the same bedroom. Some of those requirements, spacing, how your house is set up, some of these things will take a kin caregiver out of the game. They will not be able to get licensed based on those regulations. But if you adjust them in the same way we've raised our families before, um, adjust some of these regulations so it can accommodate a two-bedroom and um, uh, different than you would in a traditional. Or <clears throat> some of the supports, we financial supports that go along with that. And even um, the background check process to there, there are so many levels, whether you have access to transportation, all of these are things they take you through, through the process. And if they make adjustments the same way as any normal family would do to take care of their own in this space, I think it would be remarkable and is remarkable that we're having this conversation. 
Well, thank you, Talisa. And you just hit on some really good, good points. And what we say at a second chance is that we license in rather than license out. That is one of the things that I started really early on is saying, listen, we can always find something that was, oh, well, maybe not, but we're not going in with the proverbial white glove, making sure that grandma is just perfect because we're not perfect social workers or, or, or a system. Right? right. And so there's nothing that we do at a second chance that would ever place a child at risk. And so we think about, as you suggested, you know, um, cousin sleeping in the same room, um, or, um, you know, or siblings sleeping together to a, to a period of time and, mm -hmm. or maybe grandma transforming her living room into her bedroom so she can accommodate the children in her, in her bedroom. So the things that families have always done to accommodate, particularly when you think about Southern families living in smaller homes and having, um, large family sizes, you know, nobody had mm -hmm. their own individual bed, uh, and their own individual bathroom that that's unheard of. Right. But we really, then when it comes to kinship care, we put these layers on. And as you said, the fact that we can't even get to the fingerprinting place because they put it so far out that it's not in the urban center, we got to take three buses to get to the fingerprinting place. So sometimes systems make things more difficult than they need to be. And then they say, oh, well, the family was not cooperative. No, the family was cooperative, but you made it so difficult for them to get through your very cumbersome process. Mm -hmm. And that's why we had a second chance. We make sure we, we hold the hand of the family through the entire process because some system is like well they need to do x y and z families don't first of all trust the system right. like you said right. we're not used to that system right and then you want us to just open lay uh, lay bare all of our information no for you to use against us and you're judging us and so systems really have to understand that they have to be more engaging more inviting and move the judgment away but families are just at the outset like why is your family even in the situation some folks will say right, right. And it's like, well, I have to say, well, let me look at peer into your family, Mr. and Mr. Social Worker. So the fact that the matter is we have to have more inviting language. We have to have the child um, family um, support society in child welfare where we are supporting families. They're not seeing us as their the child welfare as the surveillance or the policing system, but rather the family support society system. And so thank you for helping us think about what that ought to look like in as we move forward. And so I know Dr. Sherry, Dr. Brock is going to ask you a question from um, a research lens because we want to dispel as we go through this conversation, um, as Dr. Freeman and, and Talisa talked about, dispel some of these myths. So Doc, back over to you. Thank you. Thank you. I was in here just going, yeah, oh, hon, that's some good stuff. But I was paying attention this time. <laughs> so I was I was there, you know, and, and, it, and it's so funny because when you say that, Doc, to your point, you said we license in and not out. When you say that to people in different jurisdictions, they look at you and you see the question mark. They may not ask the question, what do you mean? But they, 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 the question comes up and we, we, we brought that question up. You said, we license in because they were saying, well, you can't make a bedroom if there's no closet. This is what they said last week. You can't have a bedroom if there's no closet. I said, okay, so what if you go get a closet system and put it in the corner? Is it now a bedroom? They were like, yeah, I guess so. I said, that's what we mean by licensing in. You figure a way around the situation. <laughs> the fact that you, it, there's not a bedroom with no closet. 
closet. Well, do you get one of them little, um, portable racks? That's what I, I told I, them. That's what I said. So now is that a closet? I said it's called closet system. So now I have a closet. They were like, yeah, I guess so. I'm like, really? Really? But back to this conversation. So, but what does that have to do with the safety of the child in terms of whether it's a rack or if, if, if it's, I, I don't get it. But that's the stuff that we're talking about. Delise was talking about Absolutely. in terms of creating those barriers. Right. Like I'm going to go buy you a clothes rack that you can hang and some hangers. And now I've created a portable closet. Okay. If that's the issue that will not allow someone to be licensed, are you kidding me? Right. So just wanted to have that little moment right yes, there. Yes. Yes. This, you know, this stuff fuels us. So we get going. Sorry. We get on our soapbox and we get to going. So. Well, cause who would have thought, right? Yeah, I was like, really? That's it. You know, no closet. But anyway, back to this conversation, cause it's so rich and so good. And I'm trying to keep the conversation moving, but Dr. Sherry, we, we, we want to come to you because as doc said, from a research lens, we, we see that uh, child welfare professionals uh, are often concerned regarding the kin-specific licensing standards, believing that these standards are less than, that we're weakening the standard because it's kin families. And we know from our work, we know that's not the case. But from your extensive research and work with kin families, can you discuss for us uh, the kinship outcomes and the benefits to families? And you can also discuss why, why kin-specific licensing standards are crucial and critical for for kin families. Can you talk about that for a second? Absolutely. And let me just, uh, uh, you know, just also express appreciation for Ms. Talisa, who had a mic drop moment with all the things that she was talking about in terms of the barriers that um, kin families experience, kin and relative families experience. And, um, you know, I led a collaboration um, that was published in uh, earlier last year that is uh, entitled um, Aunties, Uncles, Mimas, and Play Cousins. And it goes on to talk about informal and formal adoption, uh, informal and formal kinship placements in the state of Texas. And one of the things that we speak to is um, what we call this risk averse nature that um, child welfare systems tend to have where it, as it pertains to relatives and kinship families who oftentimes come in to this process involuntarily. They do it without even thinking that they're gonna have any resources to attach to helping two, three, four, five children in their home. Um, they get told in very small amounts of time that you need to, if you're gonna do this, you need to do it now, you know? Um, and so there's not really in that transition, often a lot of support there. And then when you get to the point of again, being able to um, have any families be able to qualify to be in this formal kinship process, i.e. to be um, licensed, if you will, as, as what they call, you know, the traditional, uh, not unrelated foster parents, um, those barriers that Mr. Lisa was talking about begin, begin to just unfold. So I do think that kin-specific um, licensing standards need to be um, engaged in just the way that Dr. McDaniel's um, program and framework operates where we're trying to license in. The standards that, the, that have been set are often called quote unquote minimum standards. So, they, so the ones for unrelated foster parents ain't always that great either and often still result in kids being abused and neglected in those homes. So if we're gonna have a conversation about all of the ways that kin and relative families are getting kind of um, you know, their standards are minimized, you know, to be able to get families in and that sort of thing. So therefore they don't deserve the same resources. You know, 
we can have a whole nother conversation about what actually happens in unrelated family homes as well. Um, so I do think that, you know, when we're talking about having these licensing standards that are, that are kin specific, really what we're saying is that we're doing what it is that I would do every year as a kid. I would go and stay with, with family members and hope that I get one of those bedrooms and not have to sit and lay on the couch because whoever gets there first is going to get the couch. You know, it's the same as when my stepchildren would come to visit. Good luck finding a room or take get get you a pallet on the floor. It's 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 about maintaining those connections. And we had a great time at family events all the time. I wasn't, you know, I was I wasn't just raised by my mom and dad. I was raised by my, you know, aunties, uncles, memas, play cousins, all of those people, you know. So um those kin specific licensing standards are very important as it pertains to preserving not just the family connection, but, you know, the family culture, the richness of yes, memories yes. that we maintain. And so it's not to minimize the safety, but, it, but, it, but, but again, this is where I was saying before that I think that that 27% begins to get interpreted by states. And I could say, you know, Texas, because I, I worked and lived there for so long, and I saw families. The families that I trained um, were trained with unrelated families as well. And so it brought a whole new dynamic to that training process. I went in the home sometimes to do training, as I think Dr. McDaniel's staff does. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of different ways to be um, what doesn't seem, doesn't have to seem so creative, but just good common sense. This is what right, do. right. And it's what we've been doing in our, um, we've been doing that informally since slavery. Now we're just trying to formalize, but making all of these um you know, qualifications and mandates, if you will, to being able to get a very small amount of money when oftentimes relatives and family members say, you know what, I'm not doing it for the money. It really doesn't matter if I get the money. And we're pushing them as as professionals. You need to get these resources. Go ahead and take them. I've encountered more families who say it's just not worth the drama. And I'm like, you know, um, so I think that those are just some of the the, um, the conversations that I've had with families and, and with the researchers that uh, states and professionals, and this includes black professionals as well, they tend to be very risk averse. Let's just err on the side of caution with relatives. Somebody has a, a, a background check from 20 years ago, and this still matters <laughs> as a minor offense. Right. Those are the types of things that, that I think our uh, families that are relatives, and particularly black families, have to contend with. And so, yes, I do completely support um, more, more, um, opportunities for there to be kin specific. Um, I don't like to use the word regulations because I still consider that policing, but you mm -hmm. know, more standards that are attached to things that just look like black common sense. So that's good. That's really good, Dr. Sherry. And I, you know, when you were talking about this whole idea of um, families being um, paid, you know, Dr. Sanders talk about, well, I don't know why we think that, you know, traditional families need the resources, but these other families don't. They're, you know, they have the same needs. You put a 6'2", 275-pound right. linebacker right. in grandma's home, guess what? That little 400 or whatever dollars is going, that's just going in food. So exactly. forget about the lights and the gas and all of that sort of stuff. So we already know from studies back in 1994 that was done by... Um, uh, you know, outfit in um in D.C. Um, Rob Gain did this report that um talked about 
the, who are caregivers. We already recognize that they're under-resourced, um, that they're um, living in marginalized communities. And um, often they have, um, you know, their the educational level might be a high school diploma or, you know, some college, but we already know that they're living on the margins. And so systems place kids in these homes without supports. And guess what? Systems are not looking at the disruption rates. And we know through data that those young folks, once they, if they uh, disrupt in a relative's house, they go into higher levels of care where you're paying $300, $400 a day for group care where you cannot pay grandma $21 or $25 a day. That's not even feeding the child. And so, and it's really not just so much about the financial resources. It's also about the supports that are necessary. Grandma don't know nothing about an IEP. What does that mean? How is she negotiating getting that child through school and and ensuring that that young person of promise is going to be successful. So I think we have to look at it holistically, but supports are necessary as well. Some folks just focus and hone in on the dollars. Guess what? When I was a kinship caregiver, I said, keep your money because it's not even enough for me. I'm going to make sure she, my um, cousin had, it didn't even matter to me because um, I was going to show up and grandmas and aunties and uncles, they're doing way more than those little resources from the um, state or county has given them. So really Thank you so much, Doc, for just giving that experience as you've been working with um, kinship caregivers for a very long time as a practitioner and as a researcher. And so when we go back then, I want to just ask all of you all, just think of one word, one word that I want to help you as we think about the social workers and other folks, professionals listening to this podcast on this subject matter, I want to give, ask you to give me one word that you believe that will help shift the current paradigm in the positive direction for kinship in these systems. Dr. Sherry, since we ended with you, let's start with you. One word. Oh, one word. Um, uh, Doc, I just I want to say, say that that's, that's really hard. Trust. One word. One yeah. word. I'm sitting here with 20 and I'm not even talking. <laughs> I, I would say trust in trust. terms of trusting our families to know what they're doing. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. So trust. I want, so Dr. Sherry saying to you professionals listening, that is we, we shift the operating paradigm of the current um, system that overly surveils and under supports. We, she wants you to trust the families. They know what they're doing. What about you, Talisa? I love that. Um, it is hard with one word. I'm going to say, humanity and then make the statement it's start as a human and not as a system wow Wow. that's good center humanness right like see the people don't make them invisible see them see them through a lens of that humanity love that dr free you know what i too struggle and i was like oh my goodness this is such an amazing i had to really work to stay on mute so i didn't come in and talk when i wasn't <laughs> i just want y'all to know that was a lot of work this morning <laughs> then you now I join in. don't worry about you you know this is a free-flowing conversation i was like oh my goodness i want to say so much um but the one word that i boiled it down to is transparency you know, uh-huh. One of the things that um, I don't think the system does, it's not honest with itself. 
Like, you know what I'm saying? You, you say one thing, but your values demonstrate another. Mm. If you say you want to support, or if you say you have, you feel like children have a right to, why does your behavior count? Why is your behavior counterproductive to that thing? Yes, that's and good. if you could just be transparent about, you know, we are, we are steeped in a system of racism. And, and that's why I was so excited when Dr. Sherry was talking about some of the anti-racist practices that we must employ if we're mm. going to change the system. So transparency is my word. Wow. Oh, that's really good. That's so trust, humanity, transparency. Well, Doc, you know, I'm going to ask you your words. So, you know, since you was over there struggling with the, you know, all your words and, you know, you would be just jealous if I didn't ask you about your words. So what's your, you know, my one word was literally would be, and I would sum it up would be one of the words that we use often at a second chance. And I'm sorry to borrow that word, but it is really the word that hit me. And that is dignity. Mm-hmm. Quit, quit robbing these families of their dignity because wow. they find mm-hmm. themselves in crisis. One of the things we ask in the room when we train and do values, we often say, how many of your families have been in crisis? And people raise their hand. How many of you have had situations and needed help? They raise their hands. How many of you still felt that you knew what was best for your family, even though you were in crisis? And they raise their hand. Then why do you strip these families of their dignity just because they're in a crisis? Wow, that's good. And mine would be love. Mine would be love. I need to. I, I need folks to understand that even when we're going through these crises, when families have made some decisions or or situations have come where they may have to be um, involved in the child welfare system, parents love their children, and caregivers and, and kin love their kin. Mm-hmm. So I want folks to know, like, this is about love. Everything that we do, we center things in love. And so we have trust, humanity, transparency, dignity, and love. What a group. What a listing. Thank you all so much for that. Thank you so much. And Doc, we know that there were two other um, areas cited in um, the Biden-Harris conversation on Wednesday. And we don't want our audience to think that these are no, uh, the, these are secondary to what we've been talking about earlier. Um, but because we're a kinship agency, we wanted to make sure that we centered um, much of the conversation in kinship. But a part of kinship is who comes to the table. We know that there are um, children who um, are non-binary in terms of their self-identity and um, who are LGBTQIA+. Um, and so we need to make sure that those children, these children, have an opportunity for kinship as well. Because I would offer to you that the system does not do a good job at making sure that these young folks show up with their with their kin. In fact, they blame their kin, particularly in the African-American community. They say, oh, there's, you know, relatives, you know, they, they, you know, they're, they're Christian and they don't like these kids. That is absolutely not true. And I want to dismantle that right now. It's about making sure we understand how we approach our family. So doc, I want to ask you to lead us into the next question about our LGBTQIA um, families. Thank you. You know, this touches, and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say it. This touches my family very closely. I have a granddaughter who identifies in that manner. And when she came out, she came out to me. She, here I am, the preacher, pastor, everything. She went to dinner. She said, Pap, Pap, I want to go out with you. We went out to dinner and she sat there and I didn't know what she wanted, you know, and finally she brought the conversation up and then she told me, she came out to me and I looked at her immediately. My first response was, 
okay, did you, what, do you think I'm not going to love you? Do you think I'm not going to support you? And and I love at our church that we have a, a standard that we try to preach and teach to individuals that it's a no judgment zone. So mm-hmm. I said all that to say in this conversation, um, we know that one of the things that they second, one of the second uh, statements and landmark uh, le- regulations that they put forth was understanding and acknowledging that often LGBTQI plus, you got to go it slow to get it in there. Children are often placed in homes where they meet with additional injustices because of their sexual orientation. And, and so now when we look at this, I, I, I would offer that there are specific needs to ensure that these children also have a right to kin, but however, there's that notion, as you said, that these children uh, uh, need these families reject these children and so forth. And it's not true because we embraced uh, my, my granddaughter. The family embraces a granddaughter. And, and we are as African-American as you can get here. And we are still loving them. <laughs> so so I would say, you know, to everybody that's here, I would ask you a question. And, and the question would be, what role must we per, uh, play in educating uh, the system about kinship care with an interest to this particular group. Um, Dr. Free, since you were trying to fight to keep your uh, self on mute, come off mute. And, and what would you say to that? What education and what ways do we need to make sure that relatives love their non-binary gay, lesbian, or questioning loved ones? You know what? I think it goes back to everything that we've already centered. Um, the whole value for kinship is centered in, and Dr. Sharon wrapped it up, love. And so one of the things that I often want to make sure that I share as we protect and promote um, the role of kinship care, not only in child welfare, but we promote kinship care um, and family values as a whole. Like it's not just a thing for child welfare. Um, And this concept of young people who have have the challenge of identifying differently and showing up differently in society. Um, I think we have to go back to the core of, you know, it's not just who they are that just shows up. I think for African-American community members, they understand the challenge that young people are going to have in life in general. And so just by being black, just by being in urban areas, and then it's like, oh, wow, you're going to have to add this on. And so I think we have to center some of the sensitivities. It's not the love quotient that's in question. It's like, you know what? Hey, I want to prepare you best for this fight and I want to prepare you best to have success. And then once you have to share with individuals in that regards, it's best to be done in families because families and what we know and, um, Dr. Shannon has introduced to us levels of kinship care, you know what I'm saying? And what we know is that priority level is that close biological bond or that close fictive bond. Um, That is the thing that we can leverage because that's where you can find that unconditional love. And so there, that, that's what centers it for me, that unconditional love for families. And I I just wanted to add, guess it, we can only guess where kids youth who are parts of the LGBTQ community, um, when they um, go into the system and are placed oftentimes in group homes or residential treatment facilities or detention centers, that sort of thing, when they run away, guess what they run away to? Right, they go right back back to family members. And there's, I think, something to also be said for, you know, um, relatives, and kinship um, families who are also part of that community. 
you know, the challenges that they faced as well. So um, I love how this was kind of integrated into our conversation as well. And again, I, I would be interested to know just how this trickles down and actually shows up in practice when people, when there's decision-making being done um, with, with, with our, with our kids. Um, so, I mean, I just wanted to add to what Dr. Freeman was saying, because it just really, this, this one really does touch me in a, in, in a different way as well, because I mean, it's a, it's a special population that becomes compounded when you are talking about those, that, those kids that are part of the black community that are LGBTQIA+. Yes, absolutely. And Dr. Sherry, thank you for that, because I think the the whole idea is that, you know, we're, we're, you know, the system thinks, because I don't know where they got this from, but, you know, that Black family, the Black community is not going to embrace their loved ones. Like we, you know, grandma gonna love her baby, no matter what that baby looked like, you know, auntie's going like, like, that's my baby, you know? So every baby is cute in the black community, you know? So <laughs> in, in, in every situation, we are going to show up for family. And so I don't know where this um, began going back to your point, like where did this start? And was it one situation that then the system said, okay, um, we're just going to have this cast this um, broad net to say all black families must not love their um, LGBTQIA families. That's absolutely a myth and we must dispel that. But I think mm -hmm. we also as African-American leaders have a responsibility to push back on these systems when they place these young people in group care versus in family. And too often, that's the first place. And so to, to Lisa, what, how would you add to the conversation? Thank you, because one of the thoughts I had is, um, this is a little bit crazy to me how they view uh, this population. Um, but I'll leave space for Grace on that one um, as it develops, because I was thinking of when we have identified, because I've worked with the Rehab Institute as well. And so when you have, you put special things around special needs children and you create a whole system for them. And I don't understand why that can't be the same way here. And you want them to be with people who love them. Like you said, auntie's going to love you no matter what you look like and whether you can hear me or not. We will, in our family, make the adjustment yes. to that hearing impaired child or whatever the special need may have been. So this always bites me as well in this space because we've grown up with um, all kinds in our family, right? right? And we've loved them no matter what. Um whether it was Down syndrome, um, like you said, we think all our babies are beautiful and special. So uh, this was um, important to see them at least take a space for this group. Yes, excellent. I really love that. And Dr. Sharon, I wasn't sure, you know, you were going on the tales of Dr. Freeman, but wanted to make sure we gave space to you if you had anything else to add about that. Yeah, no, I think that what, what we've said so far really kind of covers all of that. Um, and again, I just appreciate, you know, how this part of uh, the population is really getting highlighted here in this conversation. So yeah, that's, I wouldn't have anything else to add, but I appreciate it. Yeah, Absolutely. It, it, it was so Doctor, it was, go ahead. Yeah, Doc, it was so interesting. And I hate to keep pointing this out. It's like this whole conversation could have been wrapped up in what I experienced this past week while on the road. And there was a conversation during one of the breaks where one of the young ladies identified with this category kept running from congregate care. 
and and they were like, we don't, we're going to try to get her to, and she kept running and she ran to your point, Dr. Horton. She ran back to her sister. And I was like, <laughs> and, and they were sitting there like trying to figure out how to get her back in congregate care. And no, I couldn't, no, no. I couldn't Support help the it. Sister. Yeah, I couldn't help it. I said, I said, wait, if she's running to her sister, what's wrong with it? And the sister wants her. Like, why are you all sitting in here having a whole conversation about how to keep her in congregate care if she's run three times? Hello? Absolutely. Hello. And you're trying to put her back. But you're saying the family's the problem. You're trying to put her back. No, the family's not the problem. You all are the problem. Yep. And, yeah. And so that there. going back to that fam that family support society. Absolutely. So how do we support the sister? No, and she may be young, um, but the fact of the matter is, and, and a young person may have um, some specific needs. But how do we support and wrap supports around um, the sister um, and this young person? Right. And that's what the system. It, it just it it does the same thing, expecting the same different results. Like when children run, they're telling you, "I'm unhappy." I don't want to be here. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to go mm -hmm. out. I want to be with my family. And, and, mm. and they moved her three hours away. She was three hours away in an area. And the ladies began to describe it, talking about, well, there's really nothing out there but cornfields and everything. You took this child, moved her out three hours away, put her by some cornfield and then expect her to thrive. Really? They watched too I, many yeah, movies. Yeah, you're right. That part. <laughs> that yeah, well, you know. I, I think I mean, I think that that is why, you know, the next part of the um, regulations talked about um, the need for legal representation and legal support to, um, you know, the young people, but as well as the families. Um, and so, um, you know, Salisa and uh, Dr. Freeman, can you just, you know, because you you've been developing our legal clinic at uh, a second chance because we know that um, families need supports in different ways. But I, I really um, appreciate this part of the the um, Biden Harris um, administration in terms of talking about having more robust legal support. Can you talk about and center why legal support is necessary for the triad? Yes. Um... Thank you. And I'm excited about uh, restarting a legal clinic for our community because this is the part of the setup um, that knocks out, for me, certain populations, specifically birth fathers, um, typically more so, in my experience, get caught in this space, especially mm -hmm. with not having the resources. But um, the way the system is set, just a DUI alone could take you and your family out of the game. Um, so making support services for this legal half is to me important in strengthening uh, the dynamics of the birth family side. And even if it's a kin caregiver, we would like to um, use at that moment, even if they're in a moment that this could be one thing that the legal support could get that uh, charge expunged or uh, make some adjustments for them to maybe get resources that have been withheld from them. It could be something like that. It doesn't always have to be a negative, but these this is part of the space and the resource that there's no money for. And so typically people just don't take care of legal matters. Wow, that's really good. Excellent. Mm -hmm. In brief, I'll, I'll, I'll simply add that 
one of the things that I have enjoyed about my ability to commit to the dream and the vision of a second chance is that it is it, it at its core it believes in the triad. And so when I think about our work and our anti-racist strategies to to really dismantle the system at core is making sure that birth parents have the resources um, that are necessary for them to fight. Because sometimes we don't think of the trauma that their experience of having their children removed or whatever the situation was that occurred that those children had to now become wards of the court and really helping them deal quickly because the legal ramifications is if you go 12 to 16 months and 18 months, you're going to have some serious um, consequences if we don't help you navigate quickly and appropriately. So for me, I'm so very excited that those opportunities are breaking forth. I mean, even as you mentioned, for grandparents who have to deal with IEPs and all those other things that they have to fight for just to ensure that, you know, the safety, permanency and well-being of the children trusted into their care, you know, can um, can be smooth um, because this taking on families, it's been said in this in this form already. That little check that you give is not going to substantiate what I have to deal with, with the separation and loss of a child who's been snatched out of their home and now who has to live and, and grow and develop, you know, with this as a part of their history. We don't think enough about that, of the, the different supports that family needs just because this has become a part of their story. Yeah, I mean, and and to your point, I mean that 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 whole idea of and, and what Talisa said, you know, operating from that the system with that deficit mindset, right? And so, and or you know, and then like Dr. Freeman talking about grandma having insufficient income and all that, so that legal support helps center voices, helps center. Um, here's my story. Here's the challenge that these structures, these um, uh, historic systems has set up to me, set up for me not to be included. And so that legal um, support um, is so necessary to ensure that um, one civil rights, quite frankly, um, do not continue to be violated. Because when I think about birth fathers, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast that we could just have the absence and not even the acknowledgement, quite frankly, of, of, of the birth father or the paternal side of the family. We, you know, I say I that you don't even ask the, the, the family for the paternal side. You're leaving 50% of the child's life on the table. And so how do we how do we change that and that legal support? Um, can help with that. Dr. Free, uh, Dr. Um, Horton, did you want to add anything to that legal question? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we talked about to this point is is um, really important to kind of remember, but that legal, you know, the the, the legal question, and I think um, I think what I really would like to comment on is what Dr. What, uh, Ms. Talisa was talking about in terms of that whole idea of, of um, you know, people being able to have parts of their history expunged and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. so the, over, the, the over surveillance and over policing in another structure is kind of what leads to that. So I think we need to be, um, you know, continue to be aware of how those other structures also work in terms of creating those barriers for families. So, I mean, um, yeah, just to kind of, again, go alongside and align with the, with the other, you know, um, others on, on the panel. I just really think that, you know, these are issues that continue to kind of influence 
you know, this this racist kind of um, process that goes on that, again, I think is trickled down. I think that the Biden administration, your work is phenomenal for work, for making those changes that we're talking about. Um, and again, when it starts to get trickled down, the interpretation just completely changes the game mm-hmm. for our families. Mm-hmm. That that that's 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 really good. And I and I think, um, Doc, you said earlier, Doctor Sherry, you said each of these could really we could do a podcast on each of these because they've they've actually um, brought up other issues, right? That we could really further interrogate. And so, um, we are moving to our very last question. And again. Um, we, while we know we spend a lot of time on kinship because that's what we do as an organization, we see all of this um, part and parcel of the work that we do. We touch all of these um, landmark issues that were announced on Wednesday in some way or another as a holistic kinship um, care organization. And so, Doc, why don't you lead us into that last question for Dr. Horton and Dr. Freeman? Thank you. Thank you. You guys have been tremendous. And so as we try to wrap this up, I'm, I'm sitting here like, Man, this is so good, and we have we have just scratched the surface, if you will. But scratched the surface in in, in this uh, landmark decision that was released and the regulations, it spoke of a fourth uh, one, and that was they the recognizing the need to sh- to provide strengthening services for children and families in the system, and so they uh, uh, said that they wanted to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in community based. That was critical for me, community based. Uh, child abuse and neglect prevention programs. And, and it's amazing to me that, that uh, so many uh, organizations and, and things will pay to keep people in prison, will pay for people who are in care or whatever. But we recognize that maybe some of what we need to do is do some prevention work. Let's stop the child from coming into the system. Can we do something to keep that child at home with their family and strengthen that family unit while they're home? So, you know, that final regulation, as I said, speaks to prevention, uh, Dr. Sherry and Dr. Freeman. And from a lens of a researcher, we know you both are. What are your thoughts um, regarding the most effective engagement and prevention strategies that we may need to support our black and brown communities? Uh, what do you think is something that we need to put in place there that are often over uh, represented in the child welfare system? So what can we do to keep our children at home? Dr. Well, um, or Dr. Go ahead, Dr. Horton. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, well, I think that one of the, the key kind of, again, common sense things is um, redirecting funds, you know, to um, families and not to systems. Um, you know, invest in families, write the check for families. You know, if if that's what is needed to be able to preserve families, then, then that's where money can go. I mean, I've seen in the past checks upwards of $8,000 a month or more tax-free to unrelated foster parents based on a youth's um, um, level of care, behavioral care, and that sort of thing. Yet when they're within families, their their behaviors are a lot are mitigated because they're in familiar environments, right? And so I think that you know um, we talk about mandated reporting and how that's that's an issue. How the re- a lot of the reasons why kids our black kids come into care is because of neglect, um, and neglect is tied to poverty. We me and Dr. McDaniel's and several others wrote a whole article about that. Um, and so I think that when we're talking about, you know, how to keep families together and out of systems, we need to lower the intervention tone and uh, really invest what we're spending so much money on in terms of, uh, you know, congregate care and unrelated foster home and redirect that money to families, to to parents and relatives as they need it. You know, so 
Um, it seems real common sense. There's ways to kind of really talk about that in terms of research. But I think that that's really the important um, intervention, if you will, that we need to be considering. Thank you. Thank you. As I've grown up in the system, there are several things that, you know, I keep in my toolkit. And one of the things that um, in the systems where I grew up specifically at a second chance, we've always valued the voice of lived experience. Um, we so value it that it's a part of our onboarding process. It's a part of our initial engagement called the application um, and so we're always asking, you know, do you have experience with this work? Um, I came to this work because my sister, my elder sister had five kids and she was on crack in the 80s. And by the time we got to the 90s, she lost all five of her children and my mother had to provide care. Um, and she was able to find a second chance. And so that's how I was engaged in the system. But one of the things that I think that's going to be the, the strongest research opportunity is supporting, training, promoting, and getting recognition for those who have lived in the system and how can we best learn from their stories? What can they best inform us about? So that, that's what I would offer as a researcher, as a practitioner, as an educator, um, and as a person who is just committed to this field professionally. That's very awesome. I mean, I think for both of you, um, and, and this could not have been set up any uh, more perfectly because I wanted to um, center and honor um, a person. And Dr. Freeman, you kind of led into this that you had no idea. I wanted to um, um, honor Sixto Cancel in this moment because the some of the things that we talked about and just this idea of um, centering voices. And as we know, he's the um, co-founder and CEO of Think of Us. And he um, and his team, along with many others um, at the national level, they were instrumental in ensuring that not only a second chances voice, but the voices of those with lived experience were a part of at least having conversations about what a kin first culture should look like and certainly any um, regulations or movement in this nation, what that should look like. And, and so I want to honor Sixto, but I also, we will put in a link for our audience. Um, Sixto did a TED talk on kinship care and talked about his own experience that he was placed in group home, placed in care when his relative lived just around the corner, if you will. And so just to be able to um, bring this back to center, I want to thank all of you for just your time um, this, this morning, this afternoon, um, because what you gave our audience today is so rich, so contextual, and really will allow anyone who listens to take nuggets from this and say, how do I move to a Kim First culture? What are those things that I have to dismantle in my own system that are steeped in anti-racist racist practices? What are those um, ideas that... Um, I need to think about in terms of how my leadership needs to move forward or be a part of the strategy or even moving sometimes down to the front line to say, let me understand this kinship uh, care more so that I can make uh, policy decisions or the correct decisions in terms of funding. So you've given our audience um, so much. You've given Dr. Brock and I so much. And so, Doc, what are your final thoughts about this as we close up? 
Well, as I said, I want to thank you, like Dr. Sharon, all of you all, you're so, uh, your, your minds are just amazing in this work. And I celebrate all that you all do and bring to uh, making change in the lives of children. Uh, as I said, I, I think that we have just literally on this subject, just scratched the surface. There is so much that we could have done and we could do. And this is not the end of this conversation. So, uh, Doc, my final thought is that we still have work to do while we have made change. There's still a lot of change that we yet need to make. And so I hope and pray that each of us that are here and others that hear this podcast will get involved and say, what can I do to make change for uh, children in my community and families that I serve? So thank you, Doc, for this opportunity and all of you that have joined us today. I appreciate all of you. So, Doc, uh, I'll kick it back to you for a final word and then we'll get out of here. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Brocken, and to Dr. Freeman, to Lisa, and Dr. Sherry. Again, um, you've made our palates filled with so much, um, a, a taste, if you will, a taste of what we can look and see for the future. And so thank you so much for that. And we could not have ended this month, uh, Dr. Brock and I, without celebrating kinship. That is the work that we do every day. And that is the ministry that God has given me. So we just thank um, our listening audience for this. We thank our guests today. And so I'll say it back to you. What's up, cuz? What's up, cuz? And until we come together again, we want you all to know that we thank you for all you do. And again, Dr. Sharon and all of you, thank you for our time here today. And we hope and pray that everybody that hears this podcast will say, what can I do to make change? And may we be better together than we are apart. So God bless you all. 